0: The cross of Jesus Christ represents his passion, capital P, the passion of Christ, and in that it reminds us of his world-changing sacrifice. And it's a sacrifice that he made that lifted us out of our despair and into his eternal hope. Today we're going to continue our series um, which is called The Fundamentals of Faith. And today, I want the Scriptures to speak to you. Uh, it's, it's been something I've been um, preparing, but it's been something that God's been revealing, and He reveals it in His Scriptures. And so today is all about um, opening up His Word as we continue the series and we ask God to speak to us. This is going to be one of those messages that has a lot of verses in it. And they're all going to be on the slides. Uh, Some people like to take photos of the slides, which is cool. Uh, What we also do is I make these slides available in our app, in our church app, when we put our podcast. So you can listen to this message again uh, by downloading the Zion app on your phone. But in it, you'll also find the slides. So, I'm just letting you know that in case you're someone that likes to go back to a message or back to the Word of God. Uh, Often if I've been in a conference or um, heard a message that's hit me, um, I'll listen to it again and make sure that I'm using the Scriptures to speak to me. Today's message I've called The Cross of Christ. And coming back to the fundamentals of our faith, it's really important that we look at the cross Because this cross reminds us of something. And the way that I'm going to word it today is this cross reminds us that Jesus Christ was killed by mankind. But he wasn't killed to satisfy the wrath of mankind. And as much as you might read that in the narrative... The revelation that I want you to catch this morning is that Jesus Christ was killed by man to satisfy the wrath of God. The cross was necessary, remains necessary. will eternally be grateful for the cross because it enables you and me to avoid the punishment of our sins that we deserve. That punishment would be the wrath of God. The cross changes that. Today I want you to see in the scriptures as we look at them, um, the way that uh, it's, it's shown to us and revealed to us from the beginning to the end, the cross of Christ saved us. It's a demonstration of the unconditional love of God. But I want you to see also that you're only saved by the grace and the mercy of God, not by what you do. And finally, what I want you to see today, I hope that you see it today, or as you listen to it later on, I want you to recognize that your response to the cross is vital, because the message doesn't change, but the message doesn't change your eternity. Your response to it does. The choice remains with you. And so I I I want you just to say this with me, if you will, because this is my theme for today. It would do me good, so say this, it would do me good. To embrace the cross of Christ. Let's say it like we mean it. It would do me good to embrace the cross of Christ. Let's see how that goes for us this morning. Because i got you to agree for it before you know what you're doing. The cross, as you see on the screen, is a symbol. It's a symbol that's been around for now over 2,000 years. It's a symbol of Jesus. It's a symbol of Christianity. You could go anywhere on the globe, I bet you and hold up a picture of the cross as you see it, and there would be a very, 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 very high chance they would associate that cross with Jesus Christ or with Christianity. For over 2,000 years, this cross has represented the passion of Christ, the passion meaning his suffering and his sacrifice and his death. Early church fathers, in the beginning of... um, the, what we call the A.D., so after Christ, there was a guy called Tertullian, and he's recognized as a theologian, an early church father. He was a lawyer, in fact, from North Africa. And he wrote these words in 200 A.D. At every forward step and moment, at every going in and out, when we put in our clothes and our shoes, when we bathe, when we sit at table, when we light lamps, on couch, on seat, in all the ordinary actions of daily life, We trace upon the forehead the sign of the cross. The cross needs to infiltrate every area of our lives. If you study history, you'll come across in the early church an emperor by the name of Constantine. Now, many would recognize that Constantine did a lot of harm to what we know as the pure faith of Jesus Christ and his message. It depends on your viewpoint, I guess. But as an emperor, he led his... Men into battle. That's how he became emperor. And he was outside his tent the night before, or before he entered the season of battle, and he looked up into the dark night sky and he saw what he calls a cross of light. What would we call that? What would we call it? The Southern Cross. Have you ever seen the Southern Cross in the sky? You can stand in the Northern Hemisphere, as I have done and seen the Southern Cross. You can stand in New Zealand. We claim that as part of our our, our, um, heritage in New Zealand because we've put it on our flag, the current flag. Constantine looked into the dark night sky and saw a cross of light. So committed to that revelation was he that he emblazoned it on the uniforms of his entire army. Cross of light. And he said these words to them. In hoxigna vince, which means conquer by this sign. I like that when I think about my faith. Conquer by this sign. The Apostle Paul wrote several letters to the church in Corinth specifically. In 1 Corinthians, we're going to read... Uh, some of his words, and in fact, I discovered this week a little point of interest for some of you. First Corinthians is his second letter to the church in Corinth. First Corinthians chapter 2, he says this in the first five verses And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimonies of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So important to Paul was the cross of Christ and its power that he said these words, I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and his cross crucified. So perhaps entertain me, if you will, and say this again. It would do me good to embrace the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ comes and it brings us the fullness of God's love. Paul goes on to write many epistles and letters to the church, which we use today, and they show us how powerful the cross of Christ is. So let me present the cross to you this way. God's love to you, for you, for me, for all of man, is unconditional. His love is unconditional. John 3.16, I bet you could probably bounce that back and quote it to me, some of you, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. God's love is unconditional for all. But salvation is conditional. For whosoever believed in him shall inherit eternal life. There's a condition there. There's a gateway, there's an access point. The other scripture that you see up there, John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus Christ says to Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What is the condition of your salvation? That you would accept Jesus Christ, that you would recognize who he is, that you would access the Father and eternal life through him. That's the only condition. So the love is unconditional, but the salvation is conditional. Perhaps I could say it a different way this morning if you look at the cross on the screen. Salvation is already achieved, but not always received. It's done. It's completed. 2 Corinthians in chapter 5, verse 21, it says, He God has made him Christ, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. It's already completed. God has made the process of salvation available. It's a finished work, it's a completed work, and it's done. In history, it was done once for all eternity. Salvation is achieved. There's nothing to add to it. There's nothing you can take away from it. There's only a response to it, but it's not always received. Jesus says this in John three thirty-six: He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and who does not believe the Son shall not see life. For the wrath of God abides on him. It's a message of unconditional love that points us to a salvation that is conditional, that can only be received if we acknowledge Jesus Christ. Salvation doesn't, as as such as it is, doesn't come by our effort, but it comes only as we acknowledge and respond. And so what I want to do today is I want to point to something, I want to explain something that I call often this beautiful exchange, and there's so many different ways to understand it. But I I get a bit ahead of myself because before I do, there's a word on the screen that I really would like to speak about. It's a word that stirred me this week, and it's a word that I want to draw you into, if I may. And it's the word imputation. Imputation is a theological concept, but it's an interesting one because it's one of the words we use to understand God, but we don't find that word in the Bible. Imputation is not a word that we can do a word study on from Scripture because it's not in the Bible. Does it make it bad? Well, the word Trinity is not in the Bible. You know, Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, not used once. The word Trinity is not used in the Bible. We hinge our faith on the Trinity. Next month, I think I'm going to speak a message as part of the series on the Trinity, and I'm going to draw you into understanding the dynamic relationship between the three persons who are one God. So I don't think it's bad to try and understand imputation, particularly because it helps us to see God. What is imputation? As you see on the screen there, it implies, by definition, that it's a credit. And I thought the best way to explain it in context of where I'm going to go is to give you an example. So last Monday, I was in Hamilton, and I went to a pastor's meeting. And as pastors like to do, we drink a lot of coffee, and we go for lunch. And we went for lunch, and we had a wonderful time of fellowship. And as, as lunch finished, oh, I've got to tell you, though, the brisket burger I had was amazing. Uh, two brief brisket patties with cheese slapped between them, and it was dripping down between my elbow. Is that a good burger or what? Texas, Texas Pete's, tuna. <laughs> You're welcome. Oh, it's good. Anyway, after lunch, we got up to, to leave, and and you kind of stand there to pay your bill. And as I was standing there, I felt prompted by God to pay for the lunch of my friend who was standing with me. We'd been chatting over lunch. And I've just learned not to question the promptings of God, but to follow them. So I turned to my friend and said, hey, don't worry about this. I'll get your lunch. I'll pay for it. In essence, what I was saying to him was your debt is now my debt. What you owe, I'm willing to take on as mine. His bill for lunch is mine. You could say, his debt was imputed to me, it was credited to me, it was transferred to me, and now it's my obligation, my responsibility. That's what imputation is. What was your debt is imputed to someone else. Perhaps another example I could give you was what if I wanted to give you some money? Now you're volunteering to come to lunch with me, Or for me to give you some money. And let's just say I wanted to take some money out of my account and I wanted to put it into your account. If you're a parent of teenagers in this age, they're probably going to say to you, Dad, could you text me some money? That's how it happens now. So if I was going to give you some money, if I was going to text you some money, that money would leave my account instantly and it would arrive in your account instantly. And what was my money is now Your money, yes, it is your money. It's imputed, it's an imputation, it's a credit, it's no longer mine, it's yours, because I transferred it to your account. As I was wrestling with this example, I made an interesting observation. When I was taking on my friend's lunch debt, there was no resistance, but I didn't need to really ask permission because I was in front of him in the queue. But for me to give you money by texting it to you, I need a key. I need your bank account. And you can withhold that if you want. You don't have to receive my money. Consider that for a bit. So with this concept of imputation, what I wanted to do today is I wanted to look at what I call, in theology, this beautiful exchange. And I want to do it today by the cross of Christ. A debt imputed and a credit imputed imputation, the cross of Christ. There are two sides to this. I want us to look firstly at this one, because as we remember, we just did this at Easter. In fact, we should do this every day. We should remember the cross and remember that Jesus Christ himself takes on the sins of the world. And as a result, Jesus takes on God's wrath and his judgment. It would do us good. To embrace the cross of Christ every day. It would do us good to remember this every day that Jesus Christ chose to take your debt, what you owed, and he made it his own. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Brethren, oh no, it's 15. 13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So it's not just actually about Christ taking your debt. Christ became cursed by God for you. Paul Washer, a theologian, uh, was reading some papers on his, of his this week. He says this, Christ became what we were in order to redeem us from what we deserved. He became a worm and no man. He became a serpent lifted up in the wilderness. He became the scapegoat driven outside the camp. He became the bearer of sin and the one upon whom the curse of God did fall. It is for this reason the Father turned away from him and all of heaven hid its face. Got to understand the beautiful exchange when Cross takes upon the sins of the world, he takes on the curse of the world and therefore the wrath of God, the judgment of God. Isaiah 53, verse 6. This is part of a prophetic message of who Jesus would be. Isaiah 53, verse 6. And we, like sheep, have gone astray, and we've turned every one of us his own way. That's us, the sinners. And the Lord God has laid on him, meaning Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Jesus Christ took that sin. Jesus Christ took that. And, and I just want to read one more scripture, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. Jesus, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness. For by his stripes you were healed. Jesus Christ was on the tree. He was on the cross. He was taking on not just all of the sin of mankind, but he took on the wrath of God. And I was dwelling on this this week because I don't reckon we talk about it enough. Oh, you know, it was painful because he got whipped. Oh, it, was, it was embarrassing because he got punched in the face and they mocked him and they made the crown and they put on the robe just to take the mickey out of him. Well, that was nothing compared to the scorn he had as the son who was rejected by his father because the full wrath of God was on him. I studied it this week. Why did he say in the Garden of Gethsemane, take this cup of suffering from me? Not because he knew it was going to be uncomfortable to have nails driven through his limbs, He knew the Scriptures. And the references are up there. Jeremiah 25 and Psalm 75 both talk about the cup of suffering being the cup of God's wrath for mankind. And he knew he was having to drink that cup. It wasn't unpleasant vinegar he was drinking. It was the wrath of God, the judgment of all mankind, his to take. Why did he say on the cross, in Hebrew... Father, why have you forsaken me? Because God is holy, and anyone who's cursed, hanging on a tree, God must turn from. He cannot be in the presence of unholiness, and therefore, Jesus Christ knew he would be rejected and forsaken by God. If you want something to study this week, study Psalm 22. I've just put the reference up there in verse 1. Psalm 22 is a prophetic chapter of the Bible that points to Jesus Christ and who he is and the suffering that would come. But why would I share these things with you? The cross of Christ is the place where Jesus Christ takes on your sin and therefore God's judgment and wrath. It's where he drinks down the wrath of God and he chooses to be forsaken by God for your sake. Your debt becomes his debt. What does it mean for us? God has imputed our sin, our debt, onto Jesus. What you deserved, what I deserved, we don't get. Because Jesus took it. That's one side of the beautiful exchange, and it's a lot to take on. But I I hope you consider it this week as you learn to embrace the cross of Christ. The flip side of the beautiful exchange is the imputation. And as I shared with you before, the positive side of this is there's an imputation where there's a credit back to us, not by what we do and not by what we deserve and not by our effort. But as you read on the screen, we receive by imputation, by credit, we receive by imputation the righteousness of Jesus Christ, thereby becoming acceptable before God, our Heavenly Father. It's only by that that we would not be cast out ourselves. This is good news. Righteousness is yours. Righteousness, the way, the, the way that I learned to understand righteousness is right standing before God. Sounds the same. Righteousness is right standing before God. We only get that because Jesus transfers it to us. The book of Romans is a wonderful um, book to, to read through to understand. It's often reflected on by scholars as the message of the gospel of Jesus. It unpacks the full gospel of Jesus in one letter. It's, it's not concise, it's 16 chapters, but it's called the, the, gospel, chap, the gospel book. And in it, uh, there's one verse, just one, that we'll look at for this, just one. Romans chapter 5, chapter 3, sorry, verse 24. Sorry, context-wise, verse 23 says we've all sinned and we've all fallen short of the glory of God. But he's talking about, Paul's talking about us, it says this, being justified freely by his grace. Oh, hang on. I'm ahead of myself. Freely justified by his grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. There it is, there. Romans chapter 3, verse 24 says, We're justified freely. What does it mean to be justified freely? the way that I learn to remember what justified means is to be just as if I never did. Justified means to be just as if I never did the sin. Justified means just as I never was a runaway. Justified means just as if I never did those bad things. I'm justified. The concept of justification means that we've been made righteous because God says, well, you never did it. Because when he looks at us, he sees Jesus. Why? Because the imputation is that we receive the righteousness of Jesus. It means we're clean, means we're perfect, means we're holy before a holy God. And it's free. There's no cost to you except to say yes. Justified freely by his grace. Whose grace is it? God's grace. Why has he got grace toward us? Because he has mercy toward us. Why does he have mercy towards us? Because he loves us. God loves us so much that he's choosing to avert, to turn away his anger and his wrath and the necessary judgment for our sins. He says, I'm turning it away because I love you, I have mercy towards you, and I'm extending my grace to you. How does that happen? Through the redemption that comes to us. What is redeeming? This is an interesting word because you can redeem coupons at the supermarket. Remember the old days we used to do that? Redemption is a concept that says I'm buying back something. It was used in these days in regards to slavery. So the redemption means that you've been redeemed, you've been bought back, you've been purchased out of slavery. But there's something even more important to understand in that concept is not that, because in these days, what they would do is they would trade slaves. You would go to the market and you would buy a slave, and you'd buy it of someone else who owned that slave. That's slave trading, it's not redemption. You're not transferred out of slavery to more slavery. You're transferred out of slavery. You're redeemed to freedom. That's the powerful thing about the redemption of the cross is that you've been liberated out of bondage and slavery into freedom. You are no longer a slave. So to receive God's redemption means to be received from bondage. It means we can be released from from shame and we're liberated into joy. Someone say amen to that. And it's all found, as it says in this one verse, justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, one way to salvation, and it is Christ our Lord. We're redeemed through Jesus. It comes back to him being the willing sacrifice that would set us free. We uh, we were created in Christ before the beginning of the world, and we're redeemed back into Christ. We're in him. We live in him, and all that is his becomes ours because it's imputed to us. It's credited to us by God when we say yes Christ is the Messiah. What does it mean to say he's the Christ, he's the Messiah? That word means Savior. He is the one who redeems us. This is the beautiful exchange. It's the the imputation where my debt becomes his and his righteousness becomes mine. That's a good deal. And and you could be happy about that if you would tell your face to smile a little bit, would encourage me, because this is good news. But it's not good news for Jesus if he stays in the grave. What if I propose to you the good news gets better? Well, that would be a good idea, wouldn't it? Would that give you some expectation of good things to come from this imputation? Because more than that, as you see, there's a perfect outcome to the perfect process that God designed. It's not just that Jesus would die and take your sin. It's not just that you get the credit of righteousness. It's more than that. You see here, while Jesus bore the wrath and the judgment of God... It's better because he was perfect. He was sinless. And because of that, he could not be contained by death. Death had no hold on him because he was the perfect lamb of God. Therefore, God raised him from the dead. That's good news, folks. But do you know what? It's good news for Jesus because he's now seated at the right hand of the Father. But it's good news for you because what's imputed to him is imputed to you. And look at all those scriptures up there. God raised him from the dead so that we might be raised from the dead. God raised Jesus Christ and set him and, and seated him in heavenly places, and you get to be seated with him. This is the good news of scripture that you would come to the place where you would understand not only does Jesus get to live with God forever, but because of the credit of his righteousness, Jesus made a way for us to live with God forever. There's a bunch of scriptures there for you to read, to digest, to process, to ask God to speak to you about. The word of God is alive and it wants to shape your reality so that you embrace the cross of Christ every day. Not just in his death and your victory, but in the eternal victory we have because of Christ Jesus. This is the good news. This is the good news. But even in the perfect plan of God, there's a hiccup. The cross of Christ is perfect, but we are not. We are weak. Salvation is already achieved, but it's not always received. We must respond to the invitation And so we see this perfect outcome, but we have to understand, what is our response to that? Because salvation is achieved, but it might not be received. And so I want to close this by saying to you who are here with me, you who are listening online, to anyone that might listen to this message, that your perfect outcome can only be achieved by you responding and saying yes. To embrace the cross. This is a fundamental aspect of this book, is that we would come to a personal relationship with God. What does that look like? Three things. One, accept and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Romans chapter 10 and verse 9 says that you must believe that he is the Son of God and you can confess that God raised him from the dead, then you shall be saved. That's salvation. So anywhere, anyone listening to this, that they would know that Jesus is the only way to get access to this, and by acknowledging that he is the Son of God, confessing that God raised him from the dead, we can be confident that we have been saved. That's the first step, but it's not the last. Because as I often say, tongue in cheek, all that does is get you a bus ticket to heaven. That's not the best part, that's just the beginning. The second thing that we can do is surrender to his lordship daily in all matters. And I added that on purpose. What's the reference up there? Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. Jesus is speaking to his friends. He says, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And I've made it real simple for you. I'll put it on the screen so you can see it. Follow me means live like me. Become like me. To become a disciple of Jesus Christ means to walk in his footsteps behind him so he leads you and you step literally into the imprint he made in the sand so that the sand of him becomes your sand. You become like him. And that only happens when you say, Jesus, would you show yourself to me in this situation today? Where are you in my life right now? How can I follow you today? Not just once, every day. If any man desires to come after me, let him deny himself and pick up his cross. Some translations use the word daily. Then we become like him, that we might live like him. Well, what does living like him mean? Because this is the third and final part of your response. I'm encouraging you to live in the power and the victory and the authority that the cross of Christ has gifted you by credit, by imputation. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to earn stripes. There's no qualification for except your sanctification. Day one, the moment Jesus is your Lord, you have access to the keys of the kingdom and all authority that was given to him is given to you. You just need to learn how to use it. And the church for too long has been impotent of the power of Jesus Christ, and I don't say that in criticism, I say it to build hope and expectation that there's more for us, greater than he did should we experience, that's the power, what's the victory? The victory is overcoming darkness that seeks to destroy what we're trying to, there's this wrestling match going on out there between kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light and our job is to go out there and push back the darkness, that's called victory, how do you do that? By exercising the authority he gave you. Speaking out what God's already said. This would be a good start because that's what God already said. Let's learn to live in the power, in the victory, and the authority. For that is what the Christ, cross of Christ purchased for us. And that, and my friends, is what God has imputed to us. That we would learn to embrace the cross of Christ in all aspects of our life, each day and every day. So as I close now, um, we're about to sing. And as I said to you this morning, songs are a way we can confess words of faith together. So why don't you stand and let's sing. I'm praying that the word of God would strike your hearts. Not my words, his words. I'm praying that the message of God would strike your heart. That the confession of your mouth would be Jesus Christ is my Lord. I would pray that the confession of your heart would be, come Lord Jesus and change my life. And if anyone here is choosing to respond like that today, then I'm always open to have that conversation. Today, tomorrow, any day. If someone's watching online and they are suddenly stirred because they understand that God loves them so much that He gave His only Son to die for them, then we want you to reach out to us. Reach out to a church, wherever you are in the world, reach out to someone that can sit with you and help you respond. So we pray. Come Lord Jesus.